Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to another episode of Bobcast. With you, as always, is Bob, live in the lounge, staring at the Ouija board. Tonight's guest, I first met sometime in 2007, maybe 2009. My band, Downtown Harvest, was playing at the Theater of Living Arts in Philadelphia for a man named Paul Jackson from 93.3 WMMR. It was either a local shot series, a spring fling, a Thanksgiving thing, I'm not really sure. But uh, the headliner that evening was... I think it was a reunion of sorts. It was a band called Silvertide. And I'd heard of them growing up, you know, um, in the early thousands. It was impossible not to hear about the band Silvertide. And basically, you know, we were kind of like young and we were overwhelmed. And I remember, you know, being in our dressing room and there was a knock at the door and a man walked in. A man walked in with a nice derby Andy Cap style hat. A really jovial young man. Uh, he came into the room. He was the lead singer of the band. He made us feel really at ease. He had a, basically just a charming personality. And you could just tell that he was a good guy. And you could tell that, you know, he was an eclectic, eccentric, you know, electrifying uh, lead singer. So, yeah, I was blown away by the band. I followed his career for the next, what, 10 years? It's 2016 now. He's been in many different... It's all right. We all get old. Uh, with that being said, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the Bobcast, Walt Lafty. How you doing, Walt? I'm great. How you doing, Bob? Thanks for coming on the show, man. I appreciate it. No, thanks for having me. Thanks for reaching out. So uh, basically, I'd like to go 88 miles per hour, jump into DeLorean real quick, time travel back <laughs> with all my musical guests, and take my audience into the mind of a young Walt. When you were a young man, like who were your musical idols growing up? Uh, well, I was a, I listened to a lot of different things, mostly whatever was on the radio at the time. Um, you know, I grew up like everybody else in my era, listening to, you know, Green Day Dookie came out when I was, I think, 13 or 14. Um, you know, and then, you know, later on got into different things, you know, Stunned Little Wild being one of them, funny enough. And, uh, eventually I ended up hearing this CD, um, as actually a, oh wow, I'm gonna, go back now my, my older sister handed me a vinyl of a play called Jesus Christ Superstar mm-hmm. and uh, I think I was 15 or 16 at the time and it was before I really got into like real old school rock and, and late punk and stuff and um, it was kind of like the precursor for me to, I heard Judas the guy playing Judas sing on the original Jesus Christ Superstar vinyl and just the way he sung was so soulful and I don't know what it was about his voice but it just spoke to me and uh, kind of the next day, I just was like, man, I, I want to be Judas. As <laughs> 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 fucked up as that may sound. Nah, I mean, you know, I, I kind of like that in a way. I mean, yeah, that album, you know, I was just talking to somebody about this the other day. There was something magical about growing up as a kid and kind of putting the record, you know, down, putting the needle down, like, um, and just listening to stuff. Like, now it's just so, like, quick and, like, automated. And basically, you can listen to anything you want at any point of the day. You don't even have to buy it. So there's no work involved at all. So... You mentioned um, Green Day Dookie. I think Green Day Dookie was my second concert ever. I saw him at the Philadelphia Convention Center. I never forget Billy Joe came out for the encore nude, and they did She. And I was like, oh, my God, I want to be in a rock and roll band. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, but um, so when did you like first start like basically performing in front of audiences as a young kid? Um, I didn't. Um, basically, when I was 15 years old, I... I, st- I was drumming um, just with a bunch of people and so happened to, you know, we got a space over at a, a church behind me uh, behind my parents' house. They would let us play in their basement of the church and um, we would start playing there and um, I just drummed and I was a really shitty drummer. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, back then you didn't know any better and, you know, I just did what, whatever felt natural and so I I had saved up for a whole summer about this crappy drum kit. I think it was like a CB percussion or something ridiculous. And um, paid $200 for it and started playing in this church basement. And this older guy, um, this older guy named Paul Jones, is a local guy up in the Northeast, really great guy. He, he kind of, you know, saw me and he was like, for whatever reason, um, I was drumming and singing Led Zeppelin when the, when the levee breaks i think that's what it was and and he said what the hell are you what the hell are you doing wasting your time drumming you should be singing and um we were just goofing off and stuff and i was like i said i'm not a singer my older sister's a singer she's you know trained she 
plays piano and I just I'm her backup harmony you know on our walk to school she's yeah. a singer and um you know I just uh from that point on went into his basement his basement and started recording at 15 and he wrote his own songs and would just have me sing his songs and gradually started getting into songwriting so I really spent the first couple years playing for nobody but a couple friends and hanging out in a basement with a bunch of 45 year old guys you know um most people would come home from school and you know they would maybe go to football practice or baseball practice or hang out with their friends and my friends were all guys that listened to the clash and the stones but were actually alive when they were popular so I imagine they like educated your young mind with all sorts of stories and you not know. even not even really stories. To be honest, it was it was really a lot of work. Um, from what I remember, it was just constantly just recording, constantly recording. I mean, from fifteen to eighteen, I think that's all I did was record. Uh, and and he was pretty strict with the way that I would sing, what I would sing, uh, the cadence. Um, mm-hmm. He didn't really have a lot of technological savvy. Uh, so he had this little Roland recording deck. It was like a VS-880 or something. And yeah, one of those V-Track ones where you do everything in this little tiny box and your LED screen's only about four inches wide. And it just tells, you know, just tells you like digital information, like how long of the track is and, you know, what you're recording at and how much space you have. It was really limited, but it had the little dial that would tell you if you were, you know, screaming too loud into the microphone or not. Yeah. And, um, you know, he would just kind of ride me and just uh, just the whole time just kind of go like, yeah, you're doing it wrong. You can do it better. You can do it better. And there was no auto-tune back then, you know. So, so basically it was like a like a crash course in like just musicology in a way. Like Yeah, well, you know, it was somebody outside of my parents and somebody outside of my friends that had a critical ear. Yeah. And I was at an age where, um, you know, I could have taken it really sensitively and I, I could have... I could have, you know, been like, you know, one of those kids that just got really sad about it. Yeah. But I had the, um, you know, I had the opposite. I would just, he would read me out and I would just, uh, you know, I would, um, I would just take it to heart and, and keep trying to get better. So eventually, um, you know, then I was in high school when I met, um, you know, the silver type room guitar player, Mark Malkier, who now plays in the Lake Magnus with me yeah he's the only other guy in the Lake Magnus Uh, and we became friends really close right off the bat even though we were probably polar opposites you know he had he never smoked pot in his life at that point um did really well in school um you know and I I was the complete opposite I just I barely showed up if I did I was usually high as shit and um I don't know, it was a nice balancing effect. It actually led a lot to the name of the, of the band, the Lake Magnus, eventually, because when I looked back on our friendship, I was like, wow, you know, we always get along, and we've always been able to agree on things, and even if we disagreed, and it just, uh, you know, like magnets, uh, you know, would repel, um, but opposites attract, you know, and it does. It's just, it's just really interesting that, you know, we found this really similar ground from early on even though we just had two different modes of things and there's obviously things later on that you kind of develop and realize that you have in common but at that time period i mean on face value we were just polar opposites the only thing we had in common was we both had uh hippie buses (laughs) (laughs) you know those old volkswagen pop-up campers Um, so like for the bobcast studio you know audience out there in the world can you tell me like so you, you met him and the origin of silver tide how did it happen? Where were you? Like, when did you guys decide, okay, we're a band? Well, um, Mark and I started playing coffee houses. I kind of started to leave the 40 year old guys. And, you know, I'd found uh, this guy that was my age that played acoustic guitar and he listened to, you know, I mean, he, when I met him, he had a giant hand painted Gandalf holding the lantern on the side of his heavy bus, you know, from Lord of the Rings. It was yeah. basically, he'd copied off of the Led Zeppelin. Um, album and um, we just started writing together and you know playing out you know I had a job as a as a um, cleaning and health club called the Aquatic and Fitness Center in Northeast Philadelphia and uh, my best friend Darren had basically the cleaning contract at night so our my senior year of high school we would hang out there every night and after we got done cleaning we'd you know bring girls into the hot tub and stuff and 
jump off the high dive into the pool and just do <laughs> stupid stuff. And it was a neat little hub and a hangout with no no adult supervision. So we would write songs there and just kind of hang out and kind of just got to develop and become closer friends. And then um, a guy that I had met previously, this guy named Brett Talley, um, he's later on to being later on went to be in this band Ike um, from Philly. They're a great great band. Um, he's a great guy. Shay. Yeah, he, we've been trying to get him here on the the Bobcast. He's a Batman aficionado like myself and a Walking <laughs> Dead uh, enthusiast. Um, Brett's very talented, so I, I didn't know that he was in the, in the origin story. Please continue. Yeah, well, he doesn't even know that he really was the forming thing for Silvertide. I don't even think he knows. I think I've never really even told this. Uh, usually, I always do like a condensed version, you know, where we all met, we started playing together. But fire away, man! You can you're completely uncensored here on the podcast. <laughs> but um, so Brett, I had known Brett for years. I had met him freshman year at a totally different high school um, when I was an idiot and you know knew nothing about music. And he was nice to me. And, um, um, you know, back then when you're like a 14-year-old dork and you're a freshman and not that many people are nice to you, you remember. And um, he was very talented then. And, you know, and he kind of saw that in me for some reason at that point when I didn't even really see it. Mm-hmm. And Brett started doing this uh, uh, open mic night that he hosted at a place called The Coffee Connection in Mayfair that doesn't even exist anymore. It was next to a funeral home and across the street from the 7-Eleven. Um, and the, he, he would host these open mic nights and Mark and I would go and we would play two songs and hang out and listen to Brett play and all these other guys play and Brett kind of started to leave there and open up another open mic night at a music shop in Ben Salem and he kept saying oh, you guys need to come out to my other coffee shop and you know we went the first week and we actually got lost because we had never really gone to Ben Salem that much yeah it was only 10 minutes away, but it was just like in, in a different Sofia, world. Yeah, when you're in Mayfair, you don't really leave. Uh, everything's right there. So we got lost. We went home and was like, yeah, we tried, but we got lost, you know, kind of misread directions. So <laughs> yeah. then that this went on for two or three weeks. And I guess he just thought we weren't serious or something or whatever. He was just too busy. and was just like, oh, you guys are idiots. So eventually we showed up and we got there and there was – um basically everyone in that room that formed Silvertide was at that coffee house and that second coffee house in Ben Sound and Nick was playing with the original Silvertide bass player who who kind of had left or got kicked out depending on who you talk to yeah. before uh, we, you know we, we got it signed or anything like that but um, it was uh, the drummer Kevin Frank Nick Perry on guitar and this guy Chris Smith on bass and Chris is a great guy um and they they were supposed to go on, you know, later on in the in the coffee house arrangement. You come in, you sign in, and you get your place based on how early you got there. Well, Mark and I so happened to get there early. We signed up earlier in the list. Nick and them had to leave, and we didn't know each other yet. And he was asking people if he could get bumped up on the list, you know, to get up earlier because they had to leave because they were he was 15 at the time in high school, yeah. and so it was Kevin Frank, the drummer. And um, they came to us, and they're like, "Hey, can you switch your third? And you know, we, we, you know, we don't mean to push people out of the way. We just, you know, we'd like to just kind of play, and we have to get out of here." They were like, "Yeah, sure, we're hanging out here all night." So um, they went on, and Nick did um, "White Wedding" by Billy Idol, and he sang and played guitar, and I thought it was hysterical because he was wearing leather pants in a coffee house, <laughs> and. Um, you know, he's dropped to his knees, he had the short spiky hair, he's playing guitar, and, um, you know, I just, I just said, man, like, you're really good, but you shouldn't be singing, man, <laughs> and I was just kind of brutally honest, I'm like, but you guys are fucking great, like, the drummer's great, the bass player's great, your guitar playing's great, and he's like, yeah, I'm not really a singer, but, you know, we don't really have one, I was like, well, I'm like, look, I'm, I'm not great or anything, I said, but I, I can probably sing it a little bit better than you, why don't you stick around, and just see what we do, and, and he was like, cool. And um, he stuck around and he watched us. And Mark and I, I think, did a Radiohead song that night. I think we did uh, Karma Police. Um, one or two other songs that I don't even remember, really. And uh, we kind of exchanged numbers. And he's like, Nick was at that point really adamant. He was like, he's like, look, if we combine forces, like, you're a rhythm guitar player and a singer. 
I'm I'm more of a lead guitar player, and I have a drummer and I have a bass player, and we can just yeah. kind of get get together and jam. He's like, my parents live down the street. Uh, they own a um, a hair salon in Ben Salem, and um, and if you keep going further down the road, there's this little street called Apple Way, and uh, and we live in a house in that street, and we have a basement with a full you know kind of rehearsal space kind of built into the basement and um which was really a pa and a bunch of lights that he had hung but i didn't have a space you know and neither did mark we just played we would just sit in our hippie vans and play acoustic guitar mm-hmm. so we're like all right you know fuck it you know we don't have a band let's let's go see this will work so we went and um we just shared original our original songs that we had written and you know three or four of those songs went on to become silver tide songs one of them was blue jeans was a song that i had written while i was working as a cleaning guy at a health club i would go in the boiler room because it was the only place to smoke cigarettes wow. i would go there on my lunch break and just you know as my my horrible attempt at trying to be tom petty but you know and you can hear it in the rhythm of the rhythm guitar which was kind of hard to change because it became a signature part of the song but a lot of the guys kind of hated that later on because it wasn't very original but um you know i had a you know that was my influence at the time and it creeped out really easily and you know a lot of a lot of the different songs kind of became silver tide songs they just both both camps just combined and then really we just and, i mean it's amazing to to the story i mean like if all these things didn't come into play oh, that's brett life, didn't have it? the coffee shop <laughs> You know, if if you guys didn't, if you didn't flake again, you know what I mean? Like, you you made it to Ben Salem. You didn't get lost. These guys were too young. They needed to go on early. You let them go on early. You liked his Billy Idol cover. Next thing you know, Silver Tide is formed. And I guess you guys carved your own piece of little bit of rock and roll history there, you know? It's funny how things happen like that, you know? Like, these small little moments of music, like, people coming together. I always thought, like, I, I mean, I, I, I don't know you too well, but I always thought that you guys knew each other, I guess, your whole lives. I mean, obviously, you and Mark have that kind of connection, but that's very interesting. Yeah, I mean, I mean, a lot of it has to do with, and I, I've said this, and, and I'm sure you can, you can test this now, especially having a, having a kid. Like, the older you get, the more responsibilities, you know, kind of land on your lap. And um, back then, when you're younger... And you don't have all these things pulling you in different directions. You can kind of just hang out and be. And really, all that we did, um, we did a couple things right and many things wrong. But back then, the more innocent thing that we did right was being young and being musicians and songwriters, even untested and not knowing what we were doing. Um, we kind of hubbed around whatever was happening it didn't matter if it was a scene it didn't matter if it was large or small as long as it was something in the area that we loved and we kind of excuse me gravitated towards those things and and being able to hang out and talk to these different people made these connections that kind of made all these weird variables come together um and then past that being open to the idea of hey why don't we try this you know so like, how quickly like after that coffee shop did, you guys got together in the bot in the basement. I guess you said the hair studio, and then like, what type of like um, time frame is it from when you guys started until you hit the road? Well, a year later, we were signed to Sony BMG RCA. How did that come about? Year. By the way, well, um, we first we went to George Manny, a great local producer who actually just passed away a few months ago. We paid fifty dollars to record five songs in his basement, um, which was a bargain, you know. Especially now, looking back, and George was, a, you know, a great guy and very quiet, um, and he put up with us. We were young and stupid and probably overplaying on everything, but we um, we went in and we recorded five songs, and that was our demo. So then I took that demo, and you know, half my band was sixteen years old at that point. If Wow. And bars wouldn't even let us in, so I just I went to every bar on South Street every week with CDs, begging them to let us play, just, just begging. I'm just like, just we'll play for free, we'll pay you, you know, like pay to play, just yeah. let us in. And eventually, we played at a place up in the Northeast called the Hollywood Bistro. That was our first show, and um, it was only a few months after we started playing in the basement, recorded some things. And what do you of, What do you remember about that night specifically? When it you got raided by the cops. 
cops came in? Yep, and arrested all of my friends for underage drinking. Oh my god! <laughs> so our first show was like an epic failure because our our you know three fourths of our fan base was basically written up or locked up or you know <laughs> the bar got fined. It was just like a big fucking mess. Um, I bet you they all remember it. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, like, so you started like playing everywhere then, right? I mean, in no, Philly. No, we still like, after that point we still struggled trying to find a place. So we would kind of take these little things, parties, family parties, anything we could get, and then about probably about two or three months after that Hollywood Bistro show, my wife's band, my wife's not my wife's band, my my wife's had a cousin through marriage or whatever on her mom's on her stepdad's side that played in a band called Town Hall who was an amazing, oh, yeah, amazing yeah. band. We've had George Stanford on the show here before. Oh, my God. Like, they literally, musicianship-wise, they destroyed us. They I really, mean, they, they, really just, they had a great live show. They really did. And they held the Thursday night slot residency at a bar called Abilene on South Street. Yep, yep, I remember. And uh, they were moving on to bigger and better things. And it came down to, um, you know, right time, right place again. Um, there was a bar owner named Al Geary and he basically said why don't you come in and play two songs quit bugging me <laughs> nice so we came in we played two or three songs for him and he goes alright play two or three more just let us play for a little bit longer and he goes alright cool so then about a couple weeks later he called us he said look I know you guys are underage as long as you promise me not, that you're not going to drink you know while you're there and as, you know, I'm going to make my bartenders aware that you're not 21 I'll give you guys like little wristbands yeah. and it'll be nice and cute <laughs> and you guys can play every Thursday night permitting that you actually can start to pull people in within a few weeks. So we started playing. We had seven people there. <laughs> if. <laughs> and it was like we just thought we were going to lose the gig and it was pretty horrible. So then I started lighting myself on fire on stage with Zippo fluid. I would soak my pants just to get anybody to show up. I would... <laughs> I would start smashing things, just anything I could do to just bring attention to like keep us in this bar. Keep because right, it yeah. felt like a new home to us. It felt like a new place. It was exciting. Every week we would load up our, you know, my drummer's parents' van and Mark's hippie bus, and we would drive down and scramble for parking and unload everything and rush it in. And From what I remember, it sounded pretty good there too. I mean, it had it was like a little small stage, right? The bar was off to the right. Yeah. And it had like some sort of like skull, I think, like. Uh, from what I remember but yeah please continue so lighting yourself on fire I like that yeah yeah, so just like I started just doing ridiculous things and Nick just started doing ridiculous things and eventually um, eventually while that was happening our original bass player was shopping our demo to different people and gave it to his brother his brother had a friend of a friend who was an entertainment lawyer he handed it to him he heard it and he said to my bass player, apparently, my original bass player, he said, oh, that guy couldn't hit a bad note if he tried. Can I, why don't you do something where I'm, I can actually drive to see you guys play? I'm not going to come down South Street just yet. So he said, okay. So we did this thing, and he was going to Penn State Abington um, at the time. And um, he, uh, we went up and we played, and, you know, that the entertainment lawyer came out and that guy ended up being probably the most crucial person in our career it was a guy named brad rubens who i'm still friends with eventually he garnered interest from seven or eight record labels that created a bidding war um he had paid us to and worked out an arrangement with producer david ivory to reproduce our demos to make them you know a little bit better than what we had done with George Manny because we had only done it in one night with George mm-hmm. uh, he wanted something a little bit more in depth right about then when we started recording that's when our bass player kind of started flaking and stopped showing up it was just he was kind of going through some shit in his head and you know he was in college at the time he was the oldest guy in the band he wasn't sure what he wanted eventually he just stopped showing up to gigs so um, all of this is happening and then we get a phone call Nick actually got the phone call from our manager saying like hey would you guys want to open up for Aerosmith you know at the Tweeter Center it's a side stage thing it's you know it's not that big of a deal but you know if you can the opening slot band bailed and we need someone to fill it 
if you can be there in six hours. I, you know, this is before cell phones. Yeah. And back then, I was like a total hippie. I walked around the city with my guitar, and I did no phone. Nobody would know when I was going to be home. Nobody would know when I would be near a phone or anything. So Nick frantic. Nick just said yes without even talking to anybody, and he knew that you know the opportunity for us was much bigger than if you know most people that would just look at it like oh it's no big deal it's just an opening slot on the side stage but for us it was a big deal and um and still is and uh how did he locate you what do you do drive around screaming your name i I don't even remember i just i think i i think i remember uh one of my friends because i lived with my buddy at the time i think one of my friends said dude people have been trying to get a hold of you all day and I, I think I called my parents' house, and um, my parents were like, "Yeah, um, you need to get old of Nick." He said that it's it's important. Like you guys are going to be opening up for Aerosmith tonight, and I was like, "What?" So I got a hold of Nick, and then Nick told me everything, and we kind of rushed and figured everything out. And strangely enough, I had I had eaten a bunch of drugs that day. Um, kind of mentally wasn't really prepared to deal with that because um, it was not the type of drugs that you take. Well, kind you're allowed to say it here on the podcast. Uh, just like a bunch of mushrooms and oh my god so wait you're on mushrooms and you're opening for Aerosmith yeah and I didn't even know the idea of that until afterwards but it actually worked in my favor because I just went all Jim Morris and you were just completely in the moment that's good yeah so I just started climbing the rafters and shit and just doing whatever and that led to a big write up in the paper um, which you know helped to only fuel the fire of, of record label interest and um you know, and then then the rest just kind of just zipped from that point, and it's just one big blur. Then, right? It's just you yeah, it's way. just everything picked up, and you know, I had read that you you LA. guys had traveled like all the way to you know Japan, like yeah, we've been we've been blessed enough. I've been to been to many countries, and uh, Japan Japan definitely being among one of my favorite places to have ever visited. Um, got to play there multiple times. I think there's some footage of it on YouTube. I was checking out the other night. <laughs> so I mean, like this this happened like kind of just like not overnight. I want to say, but it just kind of happened so quickly, right? I mean, how old are you when this is happening? Uh, I was probably not. I was probably had just turned eighteen or nineteen. Wow. Nick, Nick had probably just turned sixteen. I was the oldest guy in the band once my bass player left. Um, you know, it was it was definitely very crazy and. We didn't even know what we were doing. We so, I, like Aerosmith, and then like you continued on. Who else did you open for? Um, I was reading this morning, but my kid's screaming has completely blocked out all of my notes. You had Aerosmith. Who else did you tour with? Um, Van Halen, um, Alice Cooper, Godsmack. Of all uh, these bands, which one for you was it the most honored to play alongside? Honored. Like who did who did you learn from? Who did you like every night that you uh, like watch from the side stage? There's there's so there's just so many. Honestly, Bob, there's just so there's so many. I mean, I, that was I was first off, I was ten years younger than I am now, and there was um I was I was like a sponge, just absorbing so, it. Yeah, just every every single. I mean, I mean, imagine Alice Cooper must have been wild. The watch Alice Cooper was great. Yeah, awesome. I mean, Cheap Trick was phenomenal. Oh wow, um, Cheap Trick. Uh, you know we've we've. I don't know. It's just everything. I mean, I, I mean, we did we did some radio festivals with the Foo Fighters. That was a big pinnacle for me, just because I got to watch them from side stage for, you know, three or four different opportunities. Um. Yeah, I mean, did the same thing. I just uh, just absorbing each and every moment as you go. Yeah, I didn't realize you guys were so young. I mean, that's it was a big cluster amazing. Really, yeah, but I mean, a good one. So, like, you know, your music's evolving. Silver ties in the studio. You're touring almost everywhere and you know basically how how did it like like where where was like the the pinnacle where did you guys like hit and then after that you guys just kind of decided to break up as bands do i mean all bands break up or they just go on a hiatus for a long period of time well we had we had made the mistake of continuously touring so after we went on the road and um after we went on the road we just we were out for i think we toured Shinedown was on their first. We ended up becoming very close with Shinedown throughout the time because they were just tour dogs like us. But we had kind of taken it to the extreme. I think Jason Todd, the original guitar player, who was a dear friend, you know, and, and is, he had said um, after a while, 
he would they went home to make a record they came back out on the road they went home to make another record came back out on the road we were still on the road from the first record wow how many how many years were you on the road for the first record i don't even remember jesus i'm sure somebody out there could put them i mean and and, 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 you know and the the older you get you realize that it's just it's really not that big of a deal because some of these guys will make one one record like look at the stones you know know. they won't even make a record they'll go out for four years straight or but some people for, just record. I mean, look at the Sex Pistols. They recorded one album, and that's it. Yeah. You know, like, and they're just. I mean, that artwork. You see it, and you know what it is. You don't even have yeah. to see that it says the Sex Pistols. But yeah. you know what I mean. I love stuff like that. You know, I love hearing these stories. Um, so, like, Silver Tide, you know, comes to I guess a closing point. I guess in your mid twenties. I guess. I don't even. remember. Sometime around there. I, re- so, I remember coming off the road because we were we were going to be in a movie called Lady in the Water for like ten seconds. Oh yeah, and we I read about Bob that. Dylan I read about that. Yeah. And we did them at Studio Four with um, with um, the Nicolo the Nicolo brothers. And um. Did you get the chance to we, meet M Night Shyamalan? Yeah, he actually came to the studio. He's a he big actually, fan of I yours, felt, right? I was I was pretty imba- I was pretty embarrassed to be honest about that because. I had not listened to Bob Dylan at all. It just wasn't anything I... I mean, his voice was just not something I was into when I was younger. It took me that experience and a little bit later to really get into Bob Dylan. And... Um, I understand you know, just, what you're saying. Yeah, it just, it just wasn't my thing. I liked, I liked like really soulful singers. I wasn't really paying attention to like guys like... Yeah, come and get it. So wait, M. Night basically is hiring you to cover a which Bob Dylan song? Uh, Maggie's Farm and It Ain't Me Babe for the movie so oh, yeah. you know it was going to be in the movie and then you know we did a bunch of filming and stuff and it so was wait, he, com- he comes to the studio to check in on you as you're recording the song yeah yeah because wow. I guess we were what, whatever I did he didn't like <laughs> really he didn't like it oh wait he <laughs> didn't heard- like it he, oh wow and, and he, had, he came to the studio and he goes Walt he goes what does this song mean to you and I looked at him and I went to be honest I have no fucking clue <laughs> I, have, I have none I, I, I got nothing for you and he's well, like, well, what was his reaction he just kind of laughed, and, and he was like, well, look, let's talk about this for a little bit. He said, guys, I think it's important that you really kind of pay attention to, you know, what it is you're singing. And it was the first time anybody had really said that to me. You know? Really? Um, and, and I went, fuck. You know, like, I'm just so excited that I'm doing it that I'm not even really you weren't really paying the, attention to what it is. I'm just kind of like, cool. The moment, doing yeah. Bob Dylan. So essentially, cool. he, Dylan's he's cool. like directing you at this point. <laughs> yeah. As so an actor just, and as a musician. Um, yeah, so he just sat down and just kind of t- we talked about it, and he was like, "Look, Maggie's farm, man. Like, Maggie's farm is just you know, the guy is just you know, he's just getting beaten for everything. You know, it's just not finally had enough. He's just like he wants to revolt. He wants to do something about it. It's the last straw. You know, um, it ain't me, babe. Is you know a guy just politely saying, you know, uh, all those things that you want. You know, I- I'm I'm not going to be that." And I'm going to bow out gracefully. Um, and, and it kind of meant a lot because I think just having him say it. I mean, anybody, could, any one of my friends could have said it. And I've been like, ah, oh, you're such a fucking stoner, you know? Yeah. You know, but um, just having him say it in that moment, it was like intimidating, but at the same time, um, amazing. And and then we kind of went in and recut it. And um, I just kind of focused more on that. I started screaming a little bit more because people deal with frustration and anger a little bit different, but for um for me you know i'm a fighter so if uh if you know someone was you know basically making me their bitch or their slave in some way shape or form and paying me dirt i would i would revolt you would fight back yeah i would fight back so i just i did what i did the best that i could to capture that vocally and he seemed to be happy with it and so then we go on and you know we do that and then a couple weeks after that um you know, we were supposed to take a break from being on the road, and um, finally, and this is like 2005, 2006, maybe. Um, I, I, I think. Yeah, around that time. That's, I think Leading the Water came out. There. I'm, I watch all of his films, so I'm yeah, pretty sure so that's I just, it. Uh, I just, um, I ended up, um, I ended up getting a call um, from my manager saying, "Hey, Steven Tyler bailed on this, um, on this Santana gig." Uh, it's Good Morning America. It's in two days. Can you learn the song? I said, "Fuck," and it was like you know, right around the same time. So I, I, I'm driving around on my motorcycle. I'm trying to just like I have headphones in under my helmet. I'm just listening. I'm trying to just memorize all the words. This song that Steven Tyler sang, but 
Santana played on, but none of them wrote it. It was like a songwriter wrote it. And, um, I think it's called Just Feel Better. So I'm, I'm trying to learn that, and I finally, I got it enough that it's passable. Um, and, and actually, no, it was to play a, it was to play a giant opening night thing up, up in New York City. So I go out, I play that night. Then that night, you know, our, you know, we have their people come and they, they go, great. Can you do Good Morning America, you know, in two days? Just yeah. stay up here. We'll pay for the hotel. I said, yeah, sure. So I stay up there. We do that. And then I get done that, and they go, hey, can you go do a bunch of television shows in Germany, France, Spain, England? You know, um, I was like, yeah, sure. You know, we're we're taking a break right now anyway. So I went and I did that, and then um, got home, and then took my first vacation in years. Um, actually, no, it wasn't. I didn't. I didn't take a vacation then. We actually went into the studio. We went back into the studio to start working, or back up. The, we went up to the mountains, up to Potter County. Our friend has a mountain house on 100 acres. We, we all went up to the right. And that's kind of like when everything happened. It started to get bad. It was just, you know, inner, inner band fighting and just alcohol and drugs and people not getting along. And You guys are burned out, not in the sense of drugs, but, I mean, that's a lot of travel and that's a lot of work. You know? Just a lot together, and most of it was in a van before we went to a tour bus. So yeah, we had kind of gotten tired from that. And then once we got the tour bus, then it became everybody going to your different camps. Separating, you, know, like you, yeah. you go into your into your bunk and just shut your curtain yeah so and you know and and we all you know we all were guilty of it and just eventually um you know we got done we got done the writing we went up to do the record and just you know didn't agree on producers and didn't agree on songs and and then eventually just things kind of got out of hand and one guy ended up punching the other guy in the face and the other guy ended up in jail and it's just you know because a cop saw it and it just got fucked up. It just yeah. got really fucked up for a while. Another one went into rehab. And, you know, and, and eventually everybody got out of it and was better off as human beings. But, you know, n- nobody gets out unscathed, not from this industry. And, um, you know, and I'm, I'm lucky that I'm lucky now that any one of those guys could call me up for a beer, you know, and I would go out with them. Um, but I can't say that there weren't multiple years after all that went down when that was the case you know even even mark um mark and i didn't speak for a year and a half he was my best friend you know it happens and I mean, um you know and eventually we mended that and we actually bought houses right across the street from one another oh. but literally my porch faces his porch because in the end we got into it together and we should have gotten out of it together you know I mean, all um, bands, like we said at the beginning, you know, I mean, it's it's tough being in a band, you know, for people who have never been in a band. I mean, yeah, it's like having four or five, depending on how many people in your band, significant others. They're a part of no, your family. No, it's actually, you're using the exact analogy I used for years, you know. Yeah, it's it's really some like... Some are more demanding, some need yeah, more attention, some yeah. need more finessing, other ones are really helpful with everything, you know, there's and every person plays their role. One of the hardest things for me, um, speaking from a band that, you know, broke up a few years ago that played, and it's hard sometimes for for me to, like, a lot of people still come up to me and they're like, man, I really miss, you know, the Downtown Harvest. I miss you guys playing. And it's just like, I just can't go into the whole story of why we're not playing anymore. But I still want to be able to um, satisfy their needs, you know, and that's why I continue to make music. I mean, after Silvertide broke up, your musical career didn't stop. You started a whole bunch of different bands. Um, I think Automatic Fire was first, right? No, actually, I did an acoustic record with acoustic a, record. Nothing, okay. nothing but a fifty-seven microphone. Um, I went back to the original guy that taught me how to write songs. Oh, that's perfect. Tell us um, about that. And I went, and it was a guy, Paul Jones, and I went to him and I said, "Look, my headspace is all fucked up. I don't want anything overproduced. I want to just take some songs and make a raw recording." Um, and it actually just started out as like demos and stuff. And that's why we ended up just maintaining the name. My buddy, my best friend, Darren growing up heard it. And he's like, he's like, just release it, dude. He's like, everybody knows you for fucking rock. And you have this whole other side of like songs and stuff. He's like, fuck, it won't sell anything, but it's not a big deal. Just fucking get it out there. And I was like, you know what? Fuck it. So I did it. And, um, you know, ended up, ended up pressing like, I think a few thousand of them. And then sold a bunch online, and I kind of got really depressed around that time because it was just, you know, 
we had, that's when you know we finally got in a, a lawsuit with our record label and we ended up getting dropped um it just kind of went out of control for me mentally at that point and can't say that i entirely recovered yeah um but um but i got out you know and then um and then eventually after that i kind of got bored just playing by myself and then i called up brian um bass player from silver tide and you know we started just um kind of pulling in different people and auditioning people and robbie from pepper's ghosts robbie bennett was always a good friend he's now he plays with the war on drugs now and stuff evil and a rob bunch of different hmm? evil rob, evil rob yeah, yeah robbie bennett so does he still he, go uh, by evil rob <laughs> yeah it depends on who you talk to yeah <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but, uh, we played. We opened for uh, Pepper's Ghost a couple times. I think that the old, uh, the such old a great, great band. Yeah, they were great. Yeah, and my uh, Zill was my neighbor. He lived down the street. He was a little older than me, and I remember being a kid, basically just like riding my bike past his house to listen to him play drums. Yeah. So, what band did you guys start together? Um, that one. Automatic yeah, Fire, yeah, right? Uh, yeah. I remember the artwork for it. I remember seeing it online and. Digging like the, I think it was like an AK forty seven or something like that, like yeah. silhouette. The website. I was pretty angry back then. It happens. Rock and roll does that sometimes, you know. But uh, so you did that, and then I I remember being I don't know what it was for, but I was at the Grape Room once. The not the the Grape Street that was the big like nightclub thing, but yeah, once yeah. the Grape Room moved back to the original spot. Yeah, yeah. Scooter Scooter Best, shout out. He's a Bobcast supporter here. He's Definitely check him out. You guys uh, had a band called Sinai. He was there when he was there when we when we played for Clive Davis at the original Grape Street. Wow! Hello. Wow, that's that's amazing. Well, sorry, just it just like skipped. That's cool. It's cool. We're still with us here. <laughs> Something just skipped. I didn't even hear. So um yeah, I I remember that night. I remember it was a big deal because it was the first time that anybody was going to see this like I guess super group in a way. The drummer of Jealousy Curve and uh, no Philly super group anyway. Philly super group, and, <laughs> but I, me- I remember like the the website and it had like the cool logo with like the eclipse I think of like the moon. You guys came out. It was a really really large sound. There was no bass player, but you didn't really need it. The drummer pretty much filled uh, the whole low end. And I remember, you know, you were on fire that night. You jumped on the bar. You were, you know, all over the place. Another fantastic performance. That band, um, I guess you guys went to, you recorded like an EP, right? Well, yeah, we did. We actually did two separate EPs. Um, and, yeah, and, and we went on tour with Shine Down and a bunch of stuff. And uh, we were managed by McGathy up at Indigoot for a while. And, um, yeah, and then eventually, just like, I don't know, after two years, of playing with that band, we all kind of looked at each other and we're like, well, fuck, we can't afford to go on tour. Uh, at that point, I had, during Automatic Fire, I had showcased for a bunch of different record labels and I told the head of Atlantic to go fuck himself. Good. So, pretty much, um, he had, basically, we were doing our, we are doing our showcase and he just turned it back to the whole showcase the whole time and just writing shit down. Was this in New York City by chance? Yes, it was. Was it in like this like type of studio room that was real long and there was couches at the far end? Yep. I was in the same spot with Downtown Harvest and they did the exact same thing to us. They didn't give a shit. They asked us how many people we were going to play for that night at the Electric Factory. And I'm like, what the fuck? We came all the way up here. Yeah. What the hell did you bring us all the way up here for? So you could tell us yeah. that? Pretty much. That's the way bullshit. it goes. And so, I just felt like, um, you know, at that point, not that anyone ever earns their right yeah. to to really have anything but like you called me up here you said that you were interested they actually said they were super excited and they loved the music and they wanted to see us that was the exact words and we get up there and it looked like a bunch of fucking hipsters just like staring at the floor oh i hate it and then the, then the head just turned turned his back on us and i just grabbed this notepad and threw it love it love and, it <laughs> you know in, in hindsight it probably wasn't the best thing to do because it pretty much contributed to me being blacklisted between claude david fucking you know basically saying uh, you know you're fucked because you know you uh, can't actually say it it's just actions his actions did it's just like oh you're gonna make a lawsuit alright it happens it happens I mean you're rock- fucked and then the same thing with that why is rock and roll gotta be nice and pretty rock and roll should be dangerous rock and roll should be unpredictable I mean after all these bands uh, lately I guess like you came back on my radar I start listening to your new group we talked about this early earlier on in the Bobcast I Like Magnets is the name of the band 
It's just actually like magnets. Oh, I'm so, sorry, sorry. I, like <laughs> sorry, I said, I, I, I got like two hours of sleep last night with my kid. Yeah, no, that's fine. It's like fine. magnets. Like magnets. Um, <laughs> the, the music actually does sound like magnetism in a way. It's like kind of like uh, like there's an energy that you can hear in it, and it, it sounds like almost like science, I guess, in a way, but I really dig it. Um, can you tell us a little bit about like magnets? Well, um, we're doing the whole thing inside of a computer. All inside of a computer. So what, all like all these instruments that I'm hearing, what what is going on? That's um, that's Mark and I basically just um, writing an idea, arranging it five different times. Sometimes doing three or four different versions of the same song until we find something we like. Um, and just uh, you know, we start to we we basically play the drums and then we find really good drum samples and sit down and program every single one um and not an ideal method for what mark and i are really about but at the same time we early on we decided that we were going to take basically two bedrooms in my attic in my house which is a longer story but we're we've been gutting it for two years and turning it into a massive drum room nice but we didn't want to wait to just start writing and, and, and building and releasing stuff. So we said, you know what? We'll work inside the box. It'll be limiting. You know, it's not ideal. But we'll be able to really see our vision and agree on things with just the two of us without bringing in a bunch of different people and starting fights and different opinions and crap like that. So we could basically over four or five records while we're building studio and building what we think the band is, um, we can start to build our own identity and just experiment with different sounds and different concepts. And and um, and we even made the record about transition, and it's based off of one line that I read in a children's book called "Good Night Universe." I'm sorry, "Good Night Universe." You said you broke up on the Skype. Mm-hmm. Okay. Oh, uh, sorry. Yeah, I was um, reading a book called "Good Night Universe" to my son yeah. in bed, you know, a year or two ago, and and, um, and it just said. Good night, amazing pulsar, and it's just that I don't know. It, my my son just looked at me and it went, you know, basically Dang. what a, what a two year old says, "Daddy, what's that?" I said, "I don't know. Let's look it up." So I looked it up and found out that it was the you know the star that basically is dying and it's spinning, and uh, it's like a lighthouse in the way that it spins. The light looks like it's blinking, but it's not really blinking. And I'm sure I understand the full fullness of it. I'm sure a scientist or you know someone that stares at the stars all the time could explain it a lot better but my grasp of it was it was a dying star um that's very reliable it spins at like a consistent bpm so nasa apparently uses amazing pulsars to time things around them wow because they're so consistent and i just immediately equated it with um, my position in life you know that here we are we're we have all this potential, which makes us, in a way, a star. You know, that seems to be the greatest analogy for human beings that we can aspire to, or you know, saying like shoot for the stars. And um, you know, you know, just like just like everyone, I have potential inside of me, but at the same time, I'm dying, and there's this weird paradox that, that's just happening at all times. And one of the cool things is that as it dies, it has this beautiful display, and it gets a bit brighter. And I thought that that was interesting as well. It's like when a tree dies in the fall, or at least temporarily goes into hibernation, and the leaves change and put on this brilliant display and color. Uh, and there's just something pretty beautiful about that. I see, you know, that's very poetic. I knew there was definitely something scientific when I heard this band. <laughs> um, so, like, can we take a listen to something from Like Magnets here on the Bobcast? Sure. Um, you know, go with um, one of my favorite tracks is um, a track called, um, it's not Escape, I love Escape, but uh, it's track two, I believe. Um, what the hell is it called? I Want Everything. All right, everybody, this is I Want Everything by Like Magnets on the Bobcast. <clears throat> Shit swimming in my head 
up Cause you heard my song about fire But as the minutes pass and turn into years You become a curse, a priestess of lies And the only altar at which you bow Shows the reflection of your own eyes Back here on the Bobcast with Walt. Walt, uh, fantastic song. Definitely dig the music. Um, do you guys have any plans on playing live with uh, this band? Uh, we're, we're toying with it right now, but like sequencing, like gonna, with like laptops or. Well, we're thinking about doing like um, kind of like getting into looping pedals so that we can still play the instrument live. Mm-hmm. Um, and just you know kind of go from there i saw this guy liam finn years ago put out a record called i'll be lightning he's already like three or four records now i think but yeah he's he's um, talented i've heard him before yeah and i just um i had heard him and a good friend of mine named ari halbkram um who's became friends in the silvertide days used to own a magazine called fuzz magazine and um he's become a dear friend and uh, we couldn't afford tickets it was only about five or six years ago and we snuck down to the World Cafe and stood by the loading doors until one of the band members walked out. And we just pretended like we were supposed to be there and just walked in and um, watched the whole set. And Liam Finn came out in the beginning of the set with only himself and then started playing guitar and singing and then started playing the bass notes on the guitar after he looped the guitar through a looper pedal. And then he jumped on the keyboard and started playing the keyboard and then he jumped on a drum kit. And within 45 seconds, I was literally like, this is the most intimidating and fucking inspiring thing I think I've seen in a very long time. It is interesting to see a musician just be able to conquer each and every instrument live. Yeah, and it's not not perfect. But what I thought was unique about him, because I've seen looper guys do stuff like this before, Mm -hmm. he was chaotic. He just, when he went and played the drums, they were sometimes just so fraught with energy that they were almost playing out of time with the rest of the the loops but it didn't matter it was just like this level of punk rock that was just fucking phenomenal um and and then by third or fourth song the rest of the band walked out the rest of his band walked out and just took over right in the middle of a song right in the middle of a loop yep and it just fucking went off and and what was even interesting more interesting was i'm 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 a pretty socially awkward guy. Like right now, I'm a little bit intoxicated, which is contributing to me to be able to speak easily because uh, I tend to be I tend to stutter a lot and um, I'm not really uh, not very good at you know intimate or <laughs> strange social settings or anything like that. But um, I watched a, a person that I had admired walking into it, 
Um, and at the beginning of the set, I was intimidated and I was inspired. And then I kind of looked at him at the end a little bit differently because he walked out on stage. And he was sober and he was socially awkward. And by the end of the set, he was just joking around and saying some of the funniest shit I'd heard. And was just in the moment. And I was like, at that moment, I went, I fucking identify with this motherfucker. I don't, there's just something about him that I just, uh, you know, I feel like he's like, you know, kin, you know, or cut mm-hmm. from the same cloth. And I was like, fuck it, man. If he can fucking pull this off, I might not be able to pull off exactly what he's doing, but I'm going to do my my breed of it, my my version of it. And um, so I think that when whenever we get around to playing live, we're going to attempt to do something of that nature first. Um, and then eventually, when we're a little bit more confident in doing ourselves, when we know what the like magnets will sound like, um, and we're confident in it, then we'll probably start looking for guys that will complement that and, and add flavor to that and add value to that. And add a little bit of chaos to the mix. Yeah, it's kind of like loving yourself before, you know, you can't really love someone else until you love yourself first. Yeah. It's like that mentality. And like magnets, it's your baby at this point. You know yeah, I mean? and if we don't know what we're doing with it, you know, why would we bring someone else in that could alter the natural state of what it's progressing as you know it has to grow up first where can um the bobcast listeners pick up some music by like magnets uh you can go website is likemagnets.com and, and actually we're not selling the record we're only giving it away for free which is and, awesome yeah and we're and we're doing that for the first four or five records and then eventually we'll re-release everything on vinyl and um we're kind of forced to sell it through itunes but we actually have done yet because we're lazy and we'd rather write songs than deal with that shit yeah so um we're actually in the next probably tomorrow or maybe next weekend or maybe the next weekend of that we're going to upload it to itunes and have it for sale up there just because a lot of people have been have complained yeah you know they're like well i gotta download it through my computer god forbid and then i have to put it into itunes and you know people don't like to go through the work anymore so you know i figure for the people that don't want to go through the work then fuck it they'll have is to it really work though to download cents. a song though God, you know what I mean? Like, you know what it was worth to get in your car and drive to Sam Goody at the Plymouth Meeting Mall to pick up a CD or a tape Dude, back in the day? I used to sit know? by the radio all day to hear my favorite song with a tape cassette. And Me too. Put tape over the old tapes just to be able to tape it. Me too. I still have all know. my tapes, and I remember, you know, hitting the play and record button at the same time. Mixed tapes, you know, and I'm so happy that our generation was able to be a part of that. Like, it was like almost when the music really died. When I was like a kid. I was just like, oh, Jim Morrison, the Rolling Stones, the Beatles, like that's when music really existed. No, music really existed when we were young kids and you still purchased and consumed music the natural way. The way we get our music now, I, I mean, it's just, it's not, it's not organic and it, it, it's kind of, it's frustrating sometimes because I think kids kind of like make it just such a disposable thing, you know, like. Yeah, oh, I'll just sonic I'll just, wallpaper. But I'll, I think yeah. that inherently that uh, that's just the phase we're in right now. And Hopefully, it comes back. Yeah, it not even comes back. I think that music, if it, even if it is sonic wallpaper right now, and you can hear one song playing in a you know a friggin' McDonald's bathroom, and you know it, it just doesn't really matter. It's like, why do I need music while I'm pissing? You know, like uh, like that whole concept, <laughs> I'll never understand. But it kind of cheapens the value of it. But I think that people just people need music you know i think that's really what it comes down to and eventually it will find its place again all things level out it's like nature you know it snowed three days ago and then it was 60 degrees it melted <laughs> i like what you said uh, you said a little bit ago about the star when it's burning when it's dying out it shines its brightest yeah so it's got to just it's it'll figure itself out so the, i mean there's a lot of guys out there that and many of them are my friends and many of them are songwriters and musicians where they're just like oh it's there's no hope and i don't necessarily agree with that i think that i think that because the record labels for years kind of really fucked things up and i think that the consumer base and the internet kind of leveled the playing field and right now it's a free-for-all it's like the wild west and nobody knows what's going to work next. Nobody knows how, how things are going to figure themselves out. But eventually it has to because uh, people just won't make music anymore. <laughs> you know, eventually you get to a point where they'll be like, you know, you'll have a few select people that do it for art's sake and that's it. And, you know, I may be right there with them, but I don't know. Eventually people got to be able to pay their bills. So something will happen. Hopefully. Um, before we wrap up here on the Bobcast, uh, actually today on social media, a uh, thing that was trending here in Philadelphia is that 
you are throwing your hat into the ring to become the lead singer of Stone Temple Pilots. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Um, you know what? I Someone had mentioned to me, actually my best friend Darren, who pushed me to release the demo CD and was always probably my closest thing I have to a brother. He called me and he goes, did you hear Stone Temple Pilots is opening up submissions? I said, yeah. He goes, you're going to think about it? I said, probably not. I said, I said, it's tough shoes to fill. I toured with Scott Weiland. You know, he's fucking one hell of a front man, and STP is an iconic rock band. You know, I don't know. And and he's like, man, I think you're fucking being lazy, and I think you just got yourself, you know, too locked up in your own ways. You're just, you know, put yourself out there. You're a great front man. Just fucking do it. And I still put it off. And then Mark and his, you know, his girlfriend Lauren, they were getting on me when I was over at their house recording. He's like, you should fucking do it, dude. He's like, even if they only do it for a year and they take off for three years and they do it for a year, he's like, what the fuck? Like, who cares? Just, you were meant to be on stage. Just do it. And then I was over at my friend Ted's house who lives on my blog and him and his sister were getting on me and saying the same thing and his wife was getting on me. And my wife started getting on me. And then, you know, eventually um, a fan actually wrote Pierre Robert the day that he was kind of talking to the STP guys and I guess before they came on the air he had read this letter that a fan wrote and someone tagged me in it on Facebook and said when one of my favorite singers gets mentioned because a fan writes a letter and I hear it on the radio you know and had mentioned the whole STP thing and I kind of when you know when somebody tags you and it pops up and I like logged on Facebook and I saw that and I just looked at it and I'm like I feel like that you know, I got all these people tell me to do this, and I have, for some reason, I've been blessed enough with a bunch of supportive people around me, and and what, I'm not going to do it because uh, I'm a little bit scared that A, they might not pick me, or B, you know, I, you know it's going to be a tough gig because half the people are going to fucking hate me no matter what, you know, the minute you step mm-hmm. into that role, it's like, it doesn't matter who you are. You know, they're like, well, you have a pulse. You're different than Scott Weiland, so um, you're fucking, you know, you're you're horrible. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah, it's just it's always going to be that that way. So you know, and those are all the things. And being away from my son, that was a really, really, really big. You could bring him with you, though. Yeah. You know, I mean, I I I, I, I think I think you'd be a no good way. fit. You know, I've seen Stone Temple Pilots live a couple times. Fantastic band. I, I followed, you know, the talk show the army of one like all their different side projects and i think you got a lot to offer and you know i wish you the best of luck yeah so we'll we'll see i mean i'm, I'm recording vocals uh, over mark's house um tomorrow night and i'll submit it and that's really all i can do and you know that's I, all you I, can I do yeah. just mentioned it on facebook and i ended up getting a few articles written already on the fact that i just threw my name in the hat it's like not a lot of people have that to their advantage you know yeah I, th- I, I popped up facebook today on my break at work and i was like up oh, here he is you know what i mean he's, he's got his hat in the ring yeah so i think that for all the guys that you know don't have that shot you've got that shot yeah, maybe definitely. they're not as confident in their abilities you know i'd be a fool it would be a slap in the face to to not even try you you'd know? also be and making a lot of people here in the city of philadelphia very proud of you yeah yeah well you know uh, yeah luckily we live in a great city where we we back our own Totally. I mean, and they're all about it. So uh, we wish you much luck here on the podcast. Walt, um, you know, it has been a pleasure to have you. You're a really well-versed uh, podca- podcast uh, guest here. I have to say the stories that you told tonight, people will be talking about here on the social network. Uh, I wish you guys much luck with the new band like Magnets. Uh, I really enjoyed uh, what I listened to uh, this week. Uh, I was had it in my earbuds all week. Even my playing it for my son, who is uh, going to be a month old, it's also oh, wow. a, a, an ongoing theme here is, uh, in the Bobcast. It's now becoming the Dadcast. Before we leave, uh, what can you share with the audience about being a dad? What's your favorite part about it? Uh, my favorite part is when my son is, is a very sweet kid, and whenever every night I try and read him a book, you know, I just I just try and sit down and just go, like, stop whatever I'm doing and just get him tucked in for bed and it's it's one of those things where you're you know you're rushing to be a parent so you're partially annoyed that you have to you know you set up this routine and you have to maintain it but you know at the same time when i finish the book and you know in the middle he interrupts you a thousand times to ask you questions about why somebody looks sad in the book or why somebody has a blue ball or why somebody has a red cap on you know um 
but at the end of it, when I just when I think it's about time, he just looks at me and just says, "Daddy, one more time." <laughs> yeah, that's great. It's a great feeling being a dad, and uh, we share that yeah. together. But uh, once again, thank you very much for being here on the Bobcast, ladies and gentlemen. That was Walt. Thank you very much. Uh, maybe we'll bring you back for another show. Uh, you know, hopefully you become the lead singer or you know future endeavors with your musical career. Cool. And maybe when I have my studio done, you'll come in and uh, you'll come and play. Hopefully, uh, six months to a year, just come out. Maybe even you could do a bo- podcast where we just grab some beers and just play some Beatles covers or something. I would love that. Cool. All right, ladies and gentlemen, this has been another episode of. Bobcast.